Nick, thanks for having me. The craziest pizza we have ever baked. I I mean, I got to go with the Kamehameha right now. I mean, it is the hottest pizza, spicy Asian ginger sauce, candied jalapenos, two things that never really came together on a pizza and finally are. But I got to say, look out for the Dirty Cowboy coming soon. You're listening to Buff Speak, the official podcast of the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. I am Dr. Nick Gerlich, your host, as we meet up with the thought leaders making an impact today. Pizza is hands down one of the U.S.'s favorite foods, especially while dining out. And while the restaurant business in general is worth more than about 900 billion bucks a year, pizza establishments alone account for 65 billion of that. That's not too bad for one small category that has captured the imaginations of Americans, especially since it was introduced here just a little more than a century ago. One of the first documented pizzerias in the U.S. was G. Lombardi's in Manhattan. That was back in 1905, and it sent New Yorkers into orbit. Soon, pizzerias popped up everywhere, typically as mom-and-pop operations, and usually with some nice Italian name. And then ultimately, as the mid-century and beyond unfolded, chains like Pizza Hut, Domino's, Papa John's, and others came along. And although pizza's roots trace back to the area surrounding Naples, Italy, where it was a modest flatbread with toppings, it was here that the notion was perfected, right here in America. We have since exported Americanized pizza far and wide. Locally, 575 Pizzeria is one of the most popular in the Amarillo area. It racks up top ratings year after year. Our guest today is Brian Kelleher, owner and founder of 575. Brian, welcome to the show, and tell us, first of all, what made you want to start making pizza? Good question. I mean, I'd almost just say opportunity. I was uh, in a bar and grill management kind of job at a time in Denver, uh, kind of my college years, actually, and the owner had an opportunity to buy into a pizza place and came to me and said, hey, you interested? And I was, I mean, at the time, I was like, yeah, I'd, I'd be interested in being part owner, and, uh, you know, it helps that I love pizza. I'll eat it anywhere, anytime. I, I recall when you first opened here, your pizzeria was named Basil Docks. When was that, and uh, what's the significance of that name? Sure. The the Basil Docks names came from our roots in Denver. Uh, that was the place that uh, my old partner and I owned together. Um, and uh, when I moved down here, uh, we were a licensed opportunity out of Denver. So we brought the name, the recipes, the menu, everything with us down here. And, and then you decided to change your name. Why did that happen? Well, as uh, relationships in business go, sometimes it fizzled out. And uh, so we had to kind of restructure, rename, uh, just kind of re rebuild the whole menu uh, to a degree. And uh, that was just part of that transition. I remember you having a naming contest, which is... Uh, I guess another way of saying, I've been eating pizza from you for a long time. I appreciate it. (laughs) Um, And how did that all play out? I mean, I know how it ended and that your name has absolutely nothing to do with New Mexico's second area code. Right. Yeah. We, uh, my dad actually came up with that idea. I wanted a name as we look toward the future that wasn't going to pigeonhole us into the Panhandle or Amarillo you hear a lot of things like Yellow City or Bomb City or uh, Panhandle Pizzeria was suggested a number of times. 
but yeah, my dad actually came up with an idea to give it to the public as a naming competition. And we promised that if we took a name, which I really wanted to do from that list, that we would give that person a year's worth of pizza, you know, <laughs> to, to incentivize uh, people to give us, uh, you know, their name, email, address, phone number, kind of stuff like that, build a database out of it, but also uh, kind of gather as many different name ideas as potentially was out there. So we, we came up with a whole lot and 575 was the one that I felt kind of, I don't know, gave us a personality that was part of our, you know, temperature of our ovens, obviously, or maybe not obviously <laughs> to some people. Uh, but uh, it gave us an opportunity to uh, kind of take ourselves out of the kind of typical Amarillo, Yellow City, Panhandle, Bomb City, whatever, you know, and give us a name that I felt would allow us to grow into future locations, future markets, and so on and so forth. Now, I've seen another chain elsewhere around the country that incorporates 1,000 degrees into their name. Is there that much variability in oven temperature for baking pizza? I do believe so, yeah. There's another one even called 800 Degrees Pizzeria, um, and I think I may have even seen a couple others. Uh, the higher the temperature, obviously the faster it cooks, and um, and I've, I've tasted some of those places Personally, I think it I, I think it needs more time in the oven to kind of have those flavors gel together, bond, blend, all that kind of stuff, and to create the the flavor profile that we're looking for. Uh, some of those places that you know a thousand degrees, it cooks in about a minute and a half, and I just don't think that those flavors all really come together in that in that context. And why Amarillo? Are, are you are you from here? Do you have some connections? Was there some other attraction? I am from here. Yeah. I, um, wasn't necessarily born here, but uh, uh, my parents moved here in 77, and so I spent uh, elementary school, middle school, high school all here, and uh, I actually was kind of like after high school, I'm I'm never coming back to Amarillo, <laughs> but <laughs> lo and behold, you know, I, I uh, followed, followed uh, people back here and uh, decided, hey, there's not a pizza market here that I really know, and it was actually my old partner that convinced me you know, you know, a lot of people in Amarillo, you grew up there and, uh, you've, you've got great roots. Why don't you open a pizza place? And it really wasn't even, you know, crossing my mind as I was planning to move back here, that that would be something I would do. And, uh, without his insistence or his, uh, kind of, uh, suggestion, I wouldn't have even considered it, but so I'm glad he did. It's created a pretty unique, uh, lifestyle since we've done it. So how, how did you set out to differentiate yourself from all the other pizza shops in Amarillo at that time. And, and what year was that, by the way? That was 2006. 2006. Okay. I'll be honest, at the time when you opened, and, and I arrived here in 89, 17 years uh, before that, this place was a pizza desert. <laughs> there, there wasn't much competition, just bland corporate chains. So what did you do to set yourself apart? Yeah, no, I would agree with you. When I kind of surveyed the landscape, uh, I think Pizza Hut was winning best pizza in in Amarillo at the time. Um, I want I you know I knew right away that we had a recipe. Even when we took it over in Denver, we bought this recipe from a a, a young couple, and uh, we knew it was a pizza that was kind of really untasted, you know, in a major market or or uh, even by a whole lot of people. Um, so when I did bring it down here, I knew first and foremost that there was a product that was not being offered here that we had, uh, when we did decide to open my desire, just kind of growing up and traveling 
the country. I had family all over the country, brothers and sisters that went to college in far destinations. We always went to like little hole in the wall restaurants, always sought them out, never chains. And that was kind of my vision as we decided to do this in Denver. Our uh, locations were just takeout only. I knew in Amarillo that wasn't going to fly. People aren't really drivers to, you know, pick up food and take it home. We're not like a big city that way. Um, and so I wanted a, I wanted a restaurant destination where people could relax, enjoy themselves much in the same way as, you know, my remembrance of eating out when we would travel across the country. And so that was, we wanted that kind of cultural experience of sitting down, relaxing, kind of chalkboard menu type atmosphere, changing, rotating beers and, uh, and a wine list that was, you know, kind of part of the culture as well. So that was that was kind of the vision, and I think we carried it off pretty well with the first installment. You guys have definitely raised the bar, but what did it take to educate consumers about what good pizza is really like? That took a long time, and <laughs> we're we're reminding ourselves of that as we've opened our next location in Dem- in Dallas, as we'll get to, I'm sure. Um, it yeah, I mean we've got a. a a pepperoni that's crispy around the edges. You know, when we came here, people were constantly telling us, you know, your your pizza's burnt, you know. And we'd be like, well, this is actually the design of the pepperoni. And, um, and we also prefer, like, kind of a crispier crust on the bottom. Again, people would tell us, you know, you, you've overcooked the pizza. Over time, people became to know that that was our, our signature, our style of doing pizza. Uh, we actually call it Connecticut-style pizza, where it's kind of a crispier crust. Still kind of has a bit of chewiness to it, um, but the the pepperonis to us are what kind of help us stand apart. We slice those pepperonis every day. We're about probably the only pizzeria in America that still does that. I mean, you know, you can buy pepperoni slices very easily from all the distributors, but we just always find that it's the, the pepperoni slices are always too thick, which will then impart too much grease into the pizza and make it soggy, make it, you know, floppy and so we slice our pepperoni every day to make sure it's as thin as we can possibly get it and that's just i don't know some some of the little bits of our standard that we try to apply every day well it it didn't take too many years at your first location over on civic circle before you decided you needed a much larger second location Um, and i remember that first location well because it's kind of small and we would go there and gladly wait 45 minutes or an hour just for a any seat. It didn't have to be at a table. It could be at the bar, anywhere, just to be able to get some of your pizza here. And and always worry that we didn't park in the next door bakery <laughs> spot because yeah, we come out and find our car towed or something like some that. Some rough memories there, yes. <laughs> anyway, um, you soon found yourself opening up on Hillside, just west of Coulter. How did you select that location? Well, I mean, you know, you it did take us a little bit, about seven years between the first location and second. And, you know, my vision from the start was, I don't know if you remember Cafe Americana that was over on 6th Street, but, you know, you'd wait two hours to sit down at a table there. And I really kind of wanted that feel. I felt our pizza had a similar allure to it and, and, a, and an attraction that people were willing to wait, mostly because there wasn't competition to go try, you know, pizza somewhere else at that time. And, when we opened the doors, kind of similar deal. Today, I don't think we could get away with that. There's a lot of good pizza places in Amarillo that have opened up since. And uh, so it's it's a little tougher market now. Um, but yeah, we, we uh, actually used our database at that time to select the second location. 
based on where all of our customers were coming from. We uh, had adver- uh, sorry addresses of everybody uh, all across Amarillo through our loyalty program. And, you know, we were on two hour waits for sitting in the restaurant, two hour waits for takeout. And we were like, we're losing a lot of customers. You know, they're going to eat somewhere else. We need to offer another location. So we're not, you know, losing the opportunity to, to serve people pizza. And so, yeah, we used our database, uh, kind of sourced the area that was providing the most traffic the furthest away. And that happened to be kind of in the colony and, uh, uh, Greenways area. And it just made sense to put a location closer to them. So they weren't having to travel as far. They were, you know, taking, handling a lot of our business and, and revenues at the time. So, uh, that was, that was how we came to that decision. Well, I, I noticed you also have added a food trailer, which kind of gives you a third location, but one that can be almost anywhere. How does this fit into your business plan? Like a square peg in a round hole. <laughs> uh, the food truck is really hard. Um, we thought we first kind of started doing it as a way to handle catering events, weddings, so on and so forth. Uh, we really struggled with those types of uh, events. Um and so we we got that food truck kind of ba- it came out of covid we kind of uh used some relief money so to speak to help us kind of propel ourselves into that business but it is when you're used to brick and mortar mobile food trucks is really hard you know and i i i don't know i like look at the people that are doing food trucks and it's more of a lifestyle it's more of like a a passion they're individuals going out and doing the, the work, the hard work of, of, you know, gathering all the supplies, cooking the food, figuring out where they're going to be. When you're brick and mortar and you're used to people coming to you all the time, transferring that mentality to a mobile unit and making sure the internet's connected properly and all this kind of stuff, there are so many headaches with that that I, I do really miss the the brick and mortar. So it's it's been a, a real struggle to figure out how to get that off the ground and make it effective. Uh, we're also used to labor schedules that are, you know, you've got employees coming in at certain times of the day, week, you know, shifts and all that kind of stuff. With a food truck that's variable, it's hard to have that kind of detailed schedule that the staff knows to kind of rely on and, and come to expect. And so it's been a, it's been a challenge, to, to say the least. And that's the exact opposite of one of your nameless competitors who started as a food trailer and then got a brick and mortar establishment. Absolutely. Yeah, no, and and I I think, you know, they probably experienced some similar transitional uh challenges um and they may still also experience some of the balance of how to run one over the other and and vice versa. It's it's not uh kind of a simple deal. Some pizza purists will cringe at the idea of adding like a pineapple or other such oddities to their pizza, but you guys have never shrugged from such possibilities. Uh, between the many creative set menu items uh, to the build your own, basically we've got an almost infinite number of ways to have a pizza pie at 575. And some of my favorites, well, I'm thinking of the one with candied almonds, and I like sun-dried tomatoes as well. And what opened your mind to such non-traditional toppings? Uh, we kind of started with uh, beer and wine tastings, you know, in the early days of 575, just to offer some unique events and stuff like that, we would do conduct beer and wine tastings paired with uh, unique pizzas. 
And that kind of got us out of our like, you know, realm of here's what our menu has. And in the beer and wine tastings, we would bring in chefs, we would bring in uh, wineries and stuff like that. And we would figure out how to pair some of their wines or beers with, uh, I don't know, some unique topping combinations that weren't offered in our, in our normal menu. And so it, it allowed us to play and have a little bit of fun. The staff themselves are constantly coming up with, you know, new ways to blend either some of the sauces with some of the, you know, meats as is coming down the pike with this dirty cowboy. Um, but I don't know, like candied jalapenos, they, uh, our staff just started, you know, researching how to make candied jalapenos, boiling them, uh, putting them on a, on a pizza and, and the Kamehameha, kind of that spicy Asian ginger sauce with some candied jalapenos is just a unique flavor profile and, and unheard of. It's funny though, cause I never really wanted to steer too far away from traditional tomato sauce or a white pizza with our olive oil. I just kind of always was of the opinion that we're not going to sell any more pizzas. We're just going to sell different pizzas. So to add all this work into our kitchen to differentiate and diversify the menu is going to be more work on us than it's going to create, you know, more revenues or anything like that. I think there's a little bit of both. It's it's actually more fun for our staff to kind of have that opportunity to create and to explore and stuff like that. Does it sell more pizzas? Maybe, but we're still, you know, the, the numbers of pizzas are probably still about the same, but it's I think it's more fun for our staff to, you know, have that opportunity to explore and, and get creative. Well, it's that creativity, though, that has allowed the U.S. to export the idea of pizza back to Italy and other places around the world. It, it's almost like there was this unwritten uh, pizza purity law or something that said thou shalt have red sauce and sausage and pepperoni and mozzarella and things like that. Just like there was, you know, the German beer purity laws from centuries ago. We kind of showed them a thing or two about beer, too. I mean, they never knew what an IPA was until they got some from America where we actually put some flavor into it. And, and so you guys are doing pretty much the same thing. Yeah, and I, I mean, I've been to the Pizza Expo. I've seen the, uh, you know, Neapolitana uh, certifications that are required to be, you know, selling a certain style of pizza and the specific flour and tomato sauce and mozzarella that you have to buy in order to be a certified Neapolitana style pizzeria. And that's that's also something that I was like, I don't I don't really want to be pigeonholed. I, I like the mm -hmm. creativity. I like the the opportunity to explore uh, I like creating uniqueness and that's even as we try to describe our pizza, you know, we're not Chicago style, we're not New York style, even Connecticut style. We're a little bit, you know, kind of a, uh, I don't know, a, 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 an artistic version of it or, or like a kind of a unique version of it. And so we don't really worry about holding ourselves to a specific style. We just really want to create an atmosphere where people want to come in and enjoy themselves and enjoy great pizza. People in different regions, as you noted, do love to claim their style of pizza, and they will claim it to the death that theirs is the best. No trip to Chicago is complete without a visit to Giordano's or Gino's or uh, to New York to have some thin crust. And uh, I noticed you guys have a squeezed bottle of honey on every table. Um, where'd that come from? I'm betting it came from Denver because I've been to Bojo's a few times and I know they have honey on their tables too. Um, is there any one right way to make pizza? I don't think so. I mean, you know, they're, they're, you're even seeing stuff like flatbreads and stuff like that that are really just, you know, different versions of a pizza. 
uh, popping up on menus all over the place. But yeah, <laughs> you mentioned Bojo's and honey. I totally stole that. <laughs> I mean, in the restaurant industry, there's really no new things under the sun. You just kind of repackage it, you know, re rename it. You, uh, serve it in a special way or something like that. And, uh, and it becomes, you know, your staple or your, your design. People think that we started honey on the pizzas, but you know, I, <laughs> I don't mind people accidentally coming up with that, you know, knowledge or thinking it's us, but it, you know, if they ever ask me, I, I like to give credit where credit's due. Bojo's was, was definitely the inspiration for that. And, and while we're at it, Brian, what's your favorite style? I mean, this Chicago one right here can take it. If you don't say deep dish, I mean, maybe. <laughs> I, I do love a deep dish, but, you know, the problem with a deep dish is you can only really have, like, one slice before you're just full. And I want to eat as many different styles and combinations. I love when people come to my restaurant as friends and family, and they're like, you order. And I'm like, well, you got to try all these pizzas. So, you know, I end up eating all those pizzas, too. I like the variety. Um, I I do got to say, like, my style is, is still probably my favorite. I I don't really like the New York kind of floppy, kind of fold, you know, and, and real greasy and cheesy. Uh, but I'll eat it. I eat pizza everywhere. I mean, I even joke. I still enjoy like basil or uh, bagel bites from Sam's. <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> I'll, I'll eat it all. I'm kind of a, still a kid at heart when it comes hmm. to pizza. Perhaps the most fun I've ever had at 575 was your pub crawl on bikes uh, called People, Pedals, and Pints or whatever combination of those three words. I always get them mixed up and it doesn't matter because it's still the same thing. We just all called it P3. Um, what was the motivation behind that and why aren't you doing it anymore? Well, I mean, we've kind of talked about Amarillo being a bit of a small town, uh, not a lot of differentiation and, and stuff like that. When I moved back home, uh, I had been living in a big city for about seven years and we'd participated in some of these pub crawls, but just kind of stuff that the big city offered, I was missing. And about two years into owning, uh, basil docks and, you know, at the time changing the name to 575 pizzeria, uh, I just felt like there was something we could do to, again, kind of, I don't know, uh, interface or, or reach out to our guests in unique ways and, and come up with events that were fun. I didn't feel like there was a lot of people in Amarillo doing stuff like that at that time, specifically restaurants. And so, I don't know, we just kind of were sitting around the round table at our civic location and like, what could we do? And, you know, I was like, well, I, I participated in this pub crawl once in Denver and it was a blast. It went from, you know, bar to bar and people rode their bikes, cruisers, all kinds of stuff. And, uh, I was like, let's, let's give it a try. And, I mean, with very little advertisement the first year, uh, we just kind of threw out some flyers and posted them up in college campuses and uh, grocery stores and stuff like that. And we just said, pub crawl, you know, <laughs> come join us. And the first year we had 150 riders. And uh, and from that, it, it turned into, I think we did it about nine years and we had about 800 to 900 riders and participants. So <laughs> it was pretty fun. I remember I was on some of those. That was that was great fun, and it really it became community yes. uh, on wheels. Of you know, of course, but it was fun. It was a, a moving party. It was a blast. Yeah. I mean, almost, and that's kind of where it. I don't know. Eventually, came to an end. Is it got a little bit too fun? You know, at, at times, and we kind of had to remind ourselves. You know, we're first and foremost a business selling. You know pizza and, and taking care of people in the restaurants. And when it became 
I mean, we were spending about six months organizing that event before the actual event occurred, and it would take a lot of energy, a lot of time. And then when it was over, uh, we started kind of seeing, I don't know, some of the not so good sides of the event that we couldn't really control very well. And we just decided maybe this is not, you know, where we should be exposing ourselves to risk and, and stuff like that. So we kind of pulled back on that. I would like to get back, uh, I don't know, started engaging back into events of some kind, whether it's beer and wine tastings or I've had many requests to get P3 back started again, but I've got to figure out if we do that again, how we how we do it differently this time. Guests can't help but notice your love of bikes uh, because you have them hanging throughout your shop. Uh, how, what's the story behind that? Well, I mean, and that's, I, I don't know. I, I would say really it's more of a blend of our culture and where we're at at the time we're building stores. I was actually visiting with a good friend of mine, uh, Jeff Wyrick, who did some of our artwork for the, the Little Elm store. Um, I kind of see my stores being almost like album covers, you know, like you're a band, you're, uh, you know, in different times of your life at the time that album is created. And so when we were producing the Hillside store, P3 was a huge hit. People were riding bikes all the way, you know, all over the place, uh, with our event, they were associating bicycle riding with our, our pizzeria. And so that became kind of an idea that we incorporate bikes into our, um, our, uh, our architecture, our decor, our landscape of the restaurants. Uh, and that's just kind of where we were at that time, you know, as we expanded into Little Elm, you know, the, the P3 bike pub crawl kind of disappeared. It wasn't really so much of a focus in my head anymore. Um, it was, we'd kind of moved on and started looking at different things. And so I kind of had to figure out where that decor was going to go, you know, but that's really more of kind of culture is just kind of where you are at that time and, and what's influencing you. And that's where the bike theme kind of came in our hillside store. So in addition to an unlimited number of pizza topping combinations, you also have a wide selection of craft beer, and that helps you get set apart from other Amarillo restaurants as well because you go on, uh, you go looking for more obscure brands, whereas so many other establishments seem to rely on just one or two key distributors and whatever it is they carry. Why did you make this decision? Uh, that was my love of beers, even growing up, you know, back in college days. I just, I always liked craft beers and I set from the very beginning, we are not going to put a domestic on draft ever, (laughs) (laughs) even though it might be more cost efficient and, uh, cost effective for us. I just, you know, I, I wanted to be a place that was always showcasing craft beers, uh, bringing in products that I liked, enjoyed, um, and, uh, and just introducing people to new products. Uh, that was hard when we first opened in Amarillo. There wasn't a lot of craft beer that we could get our hands on. So uh, it was like Guinness, Sierra Nevada, stuff like that. But through the course of the years and as, uh, you know, TABC and stuff like that have loosened their restrictions of, you know, added, allowing breweries in Texas, man, the landscape has exploded. Uh, it's almost become overwhelming to figure out you know, which different beers to carry and how often to switch out. And, you know, we, we kind of reevaluate that often. Like, are we carrying too much? Are we, you know, switching it out too often? It's, it's a, it's a lot to take on, but 
you know, that's what the guests are wanting now. And they're, you know, they're always coming in wanting to taste everything that's new and trying different things. And, you know, it's, it's part of kind of similar situation with pizzas like, well, we want to try a different pizza. Now you're trying different beers, different wines. So it's just, it's, it's always been a part of us to kind of set that, I don't know, standard in our organization that we're going to, we're going to offer new things as often as possible. And, and as long as we can carry it off without too much headaches and hiccups, we'll, we'll keep doing it. So I, I kind of like that. A colleague and I here have studied craft beer drinkers, and we have concluded that craft beer drinkers are promiscuous drinkers. They like to drink around. And <laughs> that's safer than the other kind of doing stump something around. Yes, exactly. Um, but you also foster the idea of kind of dining around with all the different ways to make a pizza. And so those two go hand in hand there, drink around, eat around, right? They sure do. I mean, absolutely. The menu of, allows itself uh, a lot of, you know, promiscuity with the toppings and uh, promiscuity with the beverage of, beverages of choice. Uh, and and we, we've kind of set ourselves into that position. Again, sometimes it's more than we'd like. We're like, man, we got to figure out how to scale this back. I mean, even we've got a secret menu that's just as big as our normal menu from all the beer and wine tasting pizzas that we created to all the specialty stuff that shows up on our, on our whiteboards. Um, you know, we're like, sometimes we're just like, I don't, I don't know how to like tell people about all these pizzas, nor am I sure I really want to, you know, cause they're just, you know, when you've got as much turnover as typically a restaurant industry has having all the employees trained on all the normal menu pizzas plus the secret menu pizzas is can be a little bit overwhelming and that that falls into the beer category too wait 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 there's a secret menu i oh, mean yeah. come on in and out secret menu is like the worst kept secret in california and wherever they happen to have stores now what's the story behind this secret menu and where do i find it well like i said i mean it's it's come from all the different pizzas that we've either had on our menu before or had in beer and wine tastings I mean, we pretty much carry all the normal topping or all the t same toppings that are that create some of these secret menu pizzas. So they're always available, and that's kind of the challenge: is do we want to like showcase this menu and and have it roll out to where people can order off of it when our staff is barely trained on the ones we have on our menu? So it's it's always kind of a give and take, you know. All right, are we going to create like some Easter egg on our website that you know somebody could click on? and find, you know, a whole slew of, of other pizza combinations that aren't on the typical menu? Or do we just continue letting this, uh, I don't know, promiscuity and exploration of our menu happen organically and let, you know, the customers and our employees themselves continue to just create, you know, out of thin air? And it's, it's a little bit of both. <laughs> but yeah, we haven't done anything official with a secret menu yet. Next time I'm in, I'm going to ask you about that. <laughs> oh, there's... <laughs> There's so many. I mean, and any any good server or bartender that's been with us for a long time, they have their favorites. They know of some of them, and you can ask them, and they'll they'll be like, "Oh yeah, you should try this one." If you or a lot of secret menu pizzas too are just variations of an original menu item. As a case in point, like the Charlie Daniels was a great pizza that people loved and and got to know well, and it went through its you know, kind of rejuvenation period in the gnarly Daniels where we added honey and, and jalapenos to it. And it blew up so well that it became its own menu item, you know? So all these things just kind of happen through, uh, a little bit of organic 
trial and error and and some you know guests or employees insisting that it needs to be made this way <laughs> so what's it like to expand from amarillo to the big city we'll find out after the break the economy always leading in the daily news it's no secret that there is a shortage of professionals who understand what's going on in this world Master of Science in Finance and Economics prepares the next generation of thought leaders who know how to prepare institutions and companies for the great unknown. Whether you seek employment in business, government, or as an instructor, the MSFE will ground you in all the theory and show you how to put it into practice. Demand meets supply at the corner of finance and economics. It's no mistake that our MSFE is consistently rated as one of the strongest in the nation. We're double ACSB accredited and among the most elite of business schools around the world. Reach for the stars and do it with a WT MSFE in hand. Waivers are offered for the GMAT. For more information, find us at wtamu.edu slash cob or call 806-651-2500. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, we're here to help you reach those stars. The normal progression of things is that businesses start in the bigger cities and eventually find their way to the smaller ones like Amarillo. But in a strange turn of events, Brian and 575 Pizzeria have flipped the tables and opened a new location in Little Elm, Texas, a far north Dallas suburb. How did this come about, Brian? I mean, you just jumped from a metro of about 275,000 people to one with 7.6 million people, which is roughly 28 times bigger than Amarillo. Nick, this was uh, something that kind of fell in our laps to a degree. Uh, I had a great employee, great manager by the name of Marissa Bailey. She moved to the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex area. She had had a few jobs here and there, but she was like, Brian, I'm not finding the culture that we had with 575. Like, you know, what would you think about opening a location in the Dallas area and letting me run it? That was kind of a seed that was planted inside us uh, probably about five, six years ago. And Mo and I continue, we, through a couple of years, we tried to, uh, you know, find locations, find opportunities that would fit, you know, our, our style, our, you know, look for neighborhoods that would uh, jump out at us. Uh, I was still very, very cautious. I'm like, I don't really know how this is going to come together. And, and so for about two years, we kind of would look at a location here or there and just, you know, determine it was not the right fit, not the right time. Um, and at the end of about two years, I kind of said, you know, I really have no idea where I want to go. I hadn't put a lot of effort into it. And I also was just kind of very worried about whether we had the capital to do something like that. Uh, so I, I pretty much pulled the plug on the whole thought. Um, and then, and this was right around, uh, the start of COVID, uh, right around that time, we got a proposal from a little town in, uh, Dallas, Fort Worth area called Little Elm, uh, nestled between Frisco and Denton on Lake Louisville that said, uh, Hey, we just ate at your restaurant on civic circle. Uh, your, your bartender was amazing. It was Karaman Hofstetter at the time. Great bartender. And, uh, they just said, man, we love your pizza. We love your atmosphere, your vibe, everything. We think you'd be a great fit in Little Elm. We've got a building that we'd like you to take a look at. And, uh, you know, we can help you get into it in a, you know, kind of a upfront cost sort of way. And so we, uh, spent about 
I don't know, about six months taking a look at the, the building, uh, the opportunities. I started playing with some architectural renderings of how the, how the business would look in this space. And uh, after about six months, we said, I, I think we're in. Let's figure out how to do this thing. So it was something that kind of fell in our lap, but at the same time, it was something we were kind of, uh, I don't know, playing around with, tossing around. Uh, but it, it has definitely been a, a big move. <laughs> One, I, I wasn't really sure I was, uh, I don't know, should be doing it this time or, or, but you know, we're here, we're, we're doing it. So very good. So, but isn't it kind of scary opening a shop in a place like Dallas? I mean, I've heard for years and years that Dallas has the most restaurants per capita of any area in the U.S. And as a sidebar, I've never actually really seen the proof. And I went looking for it last night and couldn't find any proof. Uh, uh, it's it's a well-known rumor, though. Uh, and, and maybe it's because when you drive through any Dallas area street, it's like one restaurant after another after another. I, I tell my daughter and son-in-law uh, sarcastically, it's like, you know, you guys are going to starve here. There's nowhere to eat. And it's like, they've got hundreds of choices. I mean, how could you possibly fit into a place that has so many places to eat? But then again, I think about, well, the Metro is growing by 350 people each and every day. And maybe that makes sense, you know, because more people need more restaurants. And if you could just lay claim to those 350 people on any one given day, that could help you stay in the black. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I kind of have similar sentiments when I would drive around Denver or Dallas. I'm like, you could literally eat at a different restaurant for the rest of your life and never hit one twice. <laughs> you know, it's like there's that many. But uh, I don't know. I mean, we're all creatures of habit. We find our, you know, locations that we like and we tend to, you know, keep going back there, introduce our friends and family to it. And, you know, we get more, uh, you know, connected to those restaurants that we like. Uh, I don't think Dallas is any different than like that. Um, but it is, I mean, it was, it was, a, a scary kind of feeling that we're going into it. I even, I don't know, people would ask me, uh, years ago, you know, if I would ever consider doing it. And at the time I was like, no way, like, I don't, it's, it's too big. It, like if we were going to do it, I would only want to be in like far reaching suburbs and, you know, kind of. Staying on the on the outskirts and just focusing in on neighborhoods that I felt I could land in, and uh, yeah, I even had you know thoughts years and years ago to kind of follow the old Hastings model of be the big fish in a little pond kind of deal. So just go into small towns, places that really only had Pizza Huts or Dominoes and stuff like that, and you know plop down somewhere like that and be a brand new kind of scene. But yeah, we we've we've definitely bit. Uh, off a big chunk with the move to Dallas. Um, it's, uh, it is in a kind of a neighborhood, you know, uh, kind of just rooftop, uh, neighborhood destination. Uh, it is a, it's a bit of a tourist destination too. In the summer months, uh, Lake Louisville just explodes with Dallas and Fort Worth residents coming and descending on them. And, uh, I think it's going to be a great place for us to introduce the product to people all over the Dallas Fort Worth area. Uh, and I do hope that it springboards into future locations and allow us to expand our brand across a, a new market. But yeah, the, the introducing the brand to this market has been, you know, way more challenging than I ever anticipated. So just curious, do you get many Amarillo and Canyon people shopping at your, uh, your new store? Um, and for that matter, are they current or former Panhandle residents? I, I say this because 
my daughter and son-in-law and I went to the new Portillo's in the colony a few months ago during their grand opening. And you should have seen all the Chicago sports team jerseys people were wearing. It's like all these homesick Chicagoans who live in the Dallas area who clearly could not find a good hot dog in Dallas, if you can believe that. But they had this affinity for their hometown Portillo's. Have you seen any of that yet? I mean, we're we're definitely not the size of Chicago, so I don't think we have that many Amarilloans in the Dallas Fort Worth market. No, no sod poodles jerseys yet. <laughs> I, I mean, I would say we probably have seen one or two, um, but I was shocked with how many Amarilloans live not just in the Dallas Fort Worth area, but in the Frisco, Little Elm, Denton, the you know the Colony areas, all that area. I mean. I run into people all the time. They're like, oh, yeah, I, I grew up in Amarillo, or I've got family in Amarillo. We eat at your pizza place all the time. Uh, so it was actually something that we intentionally did was to try to reach out to all the Amarillo people that we knew either were relatives of family here or they had moved to Dallas-Fort Worth and kind of expats of Amarillo, you know, living in Dallas-Fort Worth that could uh, – come and eat with us and give us a give us some feedback on our product that they knew from Amarillo and make sure that we're doing it uh, the way that we should be doing it and uh, but there it was it was shocking how many Amarilloans were there and how I mean I'd still like to find more or have them start introducing the product to more and more of their friends um, but that's just part of you know growing into a new market is just that the time it's going to take to to reach out to everybody. And speaking of that, what are you doing to try to build a new local clientele? Yeah, it's this is where we're kind of very green and wet behind the ears. Um, we're used to the Amarillo uh, kind of loyalty that we've had forever, and we thought we could just kind of open up there and you know tell all the Amarillo people that we're finally open, and they would go and spread the word for us and all that kind of stuff. And uh, that hasn't happened as as quickly as I was thinking it would. Um, so we are doing some uh, outreach via zip code and and campaigns and such like that to uh, reach out to new diners and encourage them to come. It's a it's a difficult location just geographically speaking too. It's out in the middle of a peninsula, and so you know most people that live in the Frisco area or live in the Denton area are surrounded like we talked about with restaurants of all you know, shapes and sizes and uh, styles that they can choose from, and they don't have to travel far to do it, uh, to eat at places. So trying to get them to, uh, you know, drive over to the peninsula and come eat with us on a normal day is, you know, is is part of the challenge. But we are about to hit the high season of the summer months when we've been told, you know, expect about four to five times the volume that you're doing, you know, in the in the winter months. Uh, so get ready. Hold on. <laughs> Be drinking through a fire hose. Soon. <laughs> and, and although you haven't been open that long, have you noticed any uh, key similarities or differences, for that matter, in tastes and preferences between Dallas and Amarillo? Uh, yeah, there. Are, I, I will say this. Dallas residents, it seems everybody's on social media. So they all have, they're all content creators, influencers, you know, they're, they're giving feedback all over the place, not so much in Amarillo. So we're, you know, a little bit more, you know, kind of, uh, aware of the social presence that goes on in Dallas, uh, taste profiles. There's a whole lot more ethnicities there that we're having to make sure that we have menu items and that we're prepared for. And it's weird right out of the gate. Um, you know, 
there is a new kind of leader in pizza uh, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area that's not here. Here, it was always our Bender, the Meat Eaters, and uh, the Omni, which is our kind of supreme. Those two have kind of been the top two pizzas in Amarillo for decade, you know, decade plus. Uh, in the Little Elm area, it's 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 weird. It's more the vegetarian. The Kamehameha is skyrocketed to the top. I think that may have something to do with menu psychology a little bit more than taste profile, just the way that the menu is, is has been presented there versus how it was here. But um, there are a whole lot more, um, I don't know, uh, styles being made in the Dallas area that are you know not as traditional as what we saw in Amarillo. You mentioned to me in a in a message how much Amarillo influence there is in this new store uh, from outside to inside. Tell us about this. Yeah, so, I mean, I didn't really have a whole lot of uh, familiarity with uh, architects or contractors or anybody like that in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So uh, our architect here is uh, Mason Rogers from Playa Design. Um, and then he, uh, we've got a lot of metal work inside the building and he brought forth uh, Brandon Cope with Cope Innovations, a metal worker here in Amarillo. Uh, so he did a lot, all that kind of stuff. And then to kind of cap it all off, my friend Jeff Weirich, uh, he and I were kind of collaborating on graphics for pizza boxes and a few like small odds and ends merchandise type stuff that I'd been kicking around for years. And uh, I saw a pizza box uh, suggestion that he'd thrown out at me. And at the time I was kind of struggling with the decor and the look and feel of what I wanted Little Elm to be. And when, uh, when I saw this pizza box idea, I was just like, holy cow, that'd be really cool on the, on the wall. You know, what would you think about doing some murals, um, for the restaurant? And he and I kind of got together and talked about it at the time. Jeff had really only done like some thumbnail images on Facebook for his ping pong tournaments that he always did. So to have him, you know, take a, take a thumbnail size image on Facebook, and the art that he would use to create it on, on Photoshop or illustrator, whatever he was working with and blow something up to an a gigantic wall size, you know, image, uh, mural, uh, was new to him, new to me. You know, we worked on several ideas. Basically, I just kind of came to him. I said, I, you know, these are some of my influences throughout the years. I'm big into music and, and just kind of exploring all kinds of, kinds of different tastes. And so is he, and we kind of, like found that connection and we we're like, what if we did this and murals and, and put all this stuff on the walls and really gave it kind of a look and feel that was unique and different. And man, I'm just blown away with what he came up with. And to be able to, to do that uh, work with him and to see a restaurant that came out kind of the vision that I was looking for, but didn't know I was looking for it when we first set out, <laughs> it just, it, it just kind of all came together. But yeah, a lot of Amarillo influences and it was fun to work with all of them. I think that's amazing because basically when a guest comes in, they unknowingly are not only getting a taste of Amarillo pizza, but they're getting a taste of Amarillo professionals too. Absolutely. And it is truly a unique dining experience, and, and it's very different from your Am Amarillo locations. My family and I loved every minute of our visit there. We, we had a blast. Uh, speaking of which, though, did you find any challenges in delivering consistency, because this this is always uh, you know a problem. Quality control, as we were chatting before we went into the studio, we were talking about the, the documentary, the founder uh, about Ray Kroc, and one of his earliest concerns 
was in franchising was quality control, having the same burger everywhere. Um, once you expand it to, to new markets, it's often difficult to oversee every aspect of a business, like like what you have back here in Amarillo. How do you juggle all that? Really, I mean, I was I've been pleasantly surprised uh, both at the hillside expansion and the Little Elm expansion that we've been able to carry off the the food quality uh, and consistency very well. Uh, I mean, the ovens that I use are the same, and so they don't really change the the cook. Um, you know, you have a little differences in um, elevation and kind of barometric pressure, humidity, which, you know, contributes to how the dough is made and all that kind of stuff. But I've got a great team of, of uh, employees that have worked with me for years that know how to, you know, account for those variabilities uh, or variations. And so we, you know, the, the product itself has, has come off without a hitch, in my opinion. And I, you know, I, I've, as we brought Amarilloans in to taste the, the Little Elm experience, they all agreed like this was like eating back home in Amarillo. Like we, we hit it. Um, where I'd say we struggle is um, the quality and consistency of taking care of the guests the same way we do in Amarillo. And that just is part of expansion. I mean, I, again, I wouldn't have done this project without having managers that knew our system and knew the 575 way culture, all that kind of stuff in Little Elm. If like if Mo and my other manager, Nick O'Brien, weren't part of this, I wouldn't have considered a Dallas move. It wouldn't have been possible for me to train somebody to be that far away and to run it the way we run it, want it run here. Um, and so, but we are finding that like, you know, guests in Dallas, Fort Worth area aren't necessarily really looking for that kind of walkthrough experience, or at least the managers touching every table and coming by and making sure that everything is dialed in. It, we just haven't felt that same kind of personal connection that we have here in Amarillo. And that's been hard on us because that's what we want to do. We want to reach out and make sure those relationships are established, not just food and drink and all that kind of stuff are being provided. We want to make connections. And um, and it's it's kind of taken us a little bit out of our wheelhouse to con be okay with just being a restaurant. It's like, no, we, we really want to strive to be that. And, uh, and, and so that's, that's been a bit of a challenge on the quality and consistency side. And then the other side too, is like, we haven't hit, um, our takeout business in Dallas, Fort Worth area hasn't picked up the way it does in Amarillo. And it's a different dynamic. Everybody there is used to DoorDash and Uber Eats and all that kind of stuff here in Amarillo. We've, you know, kind of struggled to embrace those third-party delivery services. So there's, there's some issues that we're still trying to work out, but you know, it's just part of the growth of into a new market. Yeah, I can see that being a challenge because Amarillo is really a big, small town uh, with 275 in the metro area. I, I can still pop in anywhere and I see somebody I know, Yes, whether it's the owner, or a server or or a patron. It never fails that I see somebody I know. But in Dallas, not so much. Right. And, and that's that's just going to be an artifact of, of the population. But I have to ask this, and you already alluded to it a little bit uh, a couple minutes ago about maybe more locations. But even before that, in the naming, you decided to go with something that was not geographically bound uh, you know, is 575, you know, more than just a one-off? Do you see more expansion in the Dallas-Fort Worth metro area or even other markets? 
I would sure like to. I mean, we've definitely been offered many opportunities in the Canyon area, Lubbock, um, and those probably would have been more, uh, you know, logical jumps than Dallas. But uh, as I said, this this opportunity kind of fell in our laps and we took it. So we would like to see more growth. Um, the part the, the challenging part is, is just having all the number of employees that you need to make that jump possible. And training and systems and development are I wouldn't say we're, we're lacking in it, but it is an area that's constantly under, you know, like, you know, just kind of recycling, refreshing, trying to figure out, you know, how to get uh, that manager, that employee engaged and, and bought in so they want to be part of it long term and so that we can grow. Um, and that's that's kind of where we've stub our toes occasionally is thinking that we're ready. And then, you know, as as we grow and expand, we we kind of lose some traction through turnover and so on and so forth. So trying to trying to blend that or kind of bridge that gap is where we're, you know, always trying to try to fine tune our business. When we come back, we'll take a look at the future of dining out. And while some things may be the same as they were before COVID, other things are now vastly different. The demand for professionals in data analytics and information systems far exceeds the supply, which is why the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business developed the Masters of Science in Computer Information Systems and Business Analytics degree program. Already, external reviewers have ranked it among the highest IS programs in the nation. We are an AACSB accredited college and among the most elite business schools around the world. Available completely online, this program will help you transform businesses and propel them far into the 21st century. Data mining, data analytics, and data science are keys to your success, and we provide the key to unlock your future. Reach for the stars with a West Texas A&M Master's in Computer Information Systems and Business Analytics. For more info, find us at wtamu.edu cob or call 806-651-2500. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, we're here to help you reach those stars. It has been three years since peak COVID found us all quarantining, distancing, isolating, and just about every other ING you could think of. For some restaurants, it was a death punch because they could not or would not adapt to the changes at hand. For others, though, it was an opportunity to be seized because they had both the will and the means of being successful, even when times were tough. And notice I didn't use the overused word unprecedented, like we usually hear, even if it was true. And here you are, Brian, seemingly unbruised and unscathed by it all. How did you do it? There's a lot of bruises inside. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I mean, I, we joke, uh, my managers and I, I mean, it's nowhere near the comparison, but it feels like it sometimes, at least personally it does, that, you know, you always see presidents like Gray, you know, prematurely or, you know, over the course of four to eight years of a presidency, it just the toll it takes on them. Uh, that's, you know, we, we joke like, man, this has been the most challenging three years that any of us can ever remember. And, uh, we, we do, we have, you know, come out a bit unscathed on the, on the business side. I think that's a testament to the loyalty of our fans in Amarillo, the, our staff and their desire to want to, you know, embrace the guests in all different ways, you know, from takeout to dine in and, and so on and so forth, making sure that they get the pizza they want, the the beers that they're wanting. We haven't changed our method of of taking care of customers. 
And so that's where some consistency has just kind of prevailed and helped us to prevail through this is, is we haven't lost our identity through it. Um, but man, it, it was certainly every year from 20, from COVID to now, I kind of had a word like, this is the year of this, you know, and then <laughs> I thought it would get better. And then the next year would be the year of this, you know, and now, you know, it's, we're, we're right now we're struggling to see employees come back to the workforce, which is, you know, you've seen restaurants that have shut down dining spaces or whatever to, you know, limit the, the kind of loss of the ability to take care of guests. Um, and we've, we've tried to maintain that we're not going to do that. We're going to always take care of guests and we're going to seat them when they come in. We're not going to have these delays, but it, it's, it's, it's come at a cost. I mean, you know, we've, we've had turnover and we've had challenging situations that, uh, we've, we've struggled with, but you know, w what we try to do is just make sure that the guest isn't aware of that kind of stuff, you know? I remember from my childhood days in Chicago that pizza was primarily a takeaway operation, and even delivery was rare back then. Uh, this was long before we saw employee cars with magnetic corporate signs on the roof. Uh, customers phoned in their order, and and we came by in about 30 minutes to pick it up. And invariably, it was um, you know a, a nice Italian couple who owned it, somebody's family name uh, like Brunetti or Giovanni or something like that, something that ended in a vowel, of course. <laughs> um, even though your locations today are centered on the dine-in experience, you could just as easily convert to takeaway. I mean, did you find this old model work for you during COVID? You already had all the pizza boxes that people tote the leftovers in. This seems like a match made in heaven. Yeah, we, I mean, we do well at takeout, um, at least from the from the guest ordering side, I mean, in the middle of COVID, when the dining rooms were closed, we shifted just fine to a takeout model. Problem is our businesses aren't takeout models. You know, there's a lot of lease and, and uh, you know, uh, utility payments that we have to cover with a full dining room. And with those dining rooms closed, it was it was very challenging. Um, you know, we we were forced to make that transition for a time. We're grateful to be beyond that and have the dining rooms back open again. That's our model. I mean, I said from the very beginning, uh, my old partner in, in the Denver area tried to convince us to do a takeout location in Amarillo. And I was like, I, that's not my love. Like, I would rather be front and center with the guests, talking to uh, people across the bar, getting to know who they are as they're traveling through from, you know, far destinations, passing through Amarillo, getting to know why they stopped with us, all that kind of stuff. You're not doing that in a takeout location or a delivery location or even a, a quick uh, kind of fast casual location. Those, I don't know, I, I wouldn't say they're soulless, but they're just, they're, they're processes, you know, and I've, I've always kind of wanted to have more of a connection to our guests and our staff in a way that a dining experience allows itself to kind of have those opportunities. And what about the third-party delivery couriers like DoorDash and Uber Eats? You mentioned that some uh, a few minutes ago. Did that increase at all during COVID here in Amarillo? And for that matter, do they play any role at all today? Because I know when I go to Dallas, I Uber Eats and DoorDash drivers are as common as the Amazon driver. Yeah, no, that's something that we're finally coming around to because of Little Elm is the third-party deliveries. Uh, so before then... Uh, in Amarillo, we, we pushed them away. I mean, we were, 
not happy with the way that they would handle our product. We are not happy with the way the guest would respond to our product being delivered to them. Um, whether it was late, cold, you know, messed up in the box cause the driver, you know, didn't have a lot of care about it. Um, so we would, we would, uh, stay away from those even through COVID. I mean, through COVID we were still on two to three hour waits for pizzas. So adding third party delivery didn't really make a lot of sense. It's like, we're already kind of at our max capacity, you know, we can't do any more. So again, we, we didn't really use those, uh, those conveyances at the time, uh, to help us through that time. We, we were handling it all ourselves, but we have recognized in Dallas, people don't call in for pizzas the way they do in Amarillo. We've probably conditioned and trained all of our guests to do that for so many years. That's that, that's just normal. Uh, but in Dallas, they, they are all online. Everybody's using third party deliveries. Uh, they actually, we've kind of come to find out, don't mind paying more for the delivery and convenience charge, you know, that, uh, a lot of restaurants will add to, um, you know, the, the delivery side of it, uh, and even the DoorDash and Uber Eats and all those companies add to the delivery side of it. So, you know, it's something that we're beginning to engage with and learning how to, how to do that. And that will be coming soon to Amarillo within even days to week to a week or so. Where do you see pizza going in the next 10 years? Has it become as much of a stable restaurant concept, you know, on par equals with burgers? And for that matter, is there room to continue growing the category? Uh, well, I definitely, there, there's definitely changes coming down the pike. I think just from uh, food costs and all that kind of stuff that uh, every restaurant, whether it's burgers, pizza, are going to have to contend with over the next several years. Um, but I, I mean, pizza, I, I think it's the number one food, you know, it's the number one choice, um, in the, in the market all across the country. Uh, I think it may have even surpassed burgers. So I don't see it going away by any stretch, but diversification kind of changing the menu styles. And, and speaking of styles, uh, there's a, a very famous pizza operator out of San Francisco that does courses on about. 10 to 15 different official styles of pizza. So like <laughs> you mentioned Chicago, I mentioned New York and Connecticut. There's now a Detroit style. You know, I think there's there's a half a dozen other styles that, you know, in certain areas of the country people know, but they haven't really proliferated out, you know, through the whole country, but they will because people want to get trained on them. They want to like showcase that pizza in Florida or, you know, wherever. So They'll, they'll continue to be growth in pizza, um, I don't know, more just through diversification and, you know, just trying to make it unique to, you know, the operator and the, the environment, the, the neighborhoods they're in and so on and so forth. But, um, I mean, when you're coming up with so many crazy new beers, pizzas are <laughs> the same way. They're just, there's so much, you know, opportunity to just keep growing and, and, and expanding. And it's become just as contentious as barbecue with all these regional preferences. And I think that's great. It attests to the Americanization of pizza. It's ours. And now we can export it to other people. They can have a taste of us now instead of the other way around. So Absolutely. It's all good. Um, what do you think quick service restaurants and fast casual shops like yours will look like in another decade? Will dine-in continue to play much of a role as it did before COVID? 
Um, or will we see more balance between dine-in and takeaway, or for that matter, just takeaway? I mean, I've, I've seen lots of uh, architectural renderings of fast food establishments that, are, that don't even ha- have any dine-in. It's strictly drive-through, and it's either you doing the drive-through or the, or the DoorDash guy doing it, and it's all consumed somewhere else. Well, the challenges we're facing right now are labor, and the the cost of labor is going through the roof, and we're also not getting the employees that we need to run our businesses. And so what we're seeing, and we've seen it for a while, but the fast casuals are, are taking over. You just need less employees. You don't need servers, bartenders, all that kind of stuff. It can all be done counter service, and then the guest goes and seats themselves. But uh, th- I think that's going to continue. You're even seeing McDonald's and Wendy's and places like that that are having no employees whatsoever. You know, you order from a kiosk and some computer is, you know, putting the pulling the the burger or whatever out of whatever cooking element, wrapping it in paper and sliding it out through some uh, robot. You know, it's it's uh, the the challenges are real when it comes to labor and doing a full service dining room is that much harder uh, with the challenges that we're facing in labor. So I don't want to kind of steer away from that just to kind of fall in with economics because I, again, I think you lose that customer experience, that guest interaction, the relationships that are built. And that's, that's kind of where I set myself in line with wanting to be in the restaurant industry is I don't want to, I don't want to just process people. I want to get to know them and, and be part of the kind of fabric of the neighborhoods and, and be the place as, as I kind of set out, even from day one, opening our civic circle location. I want to be the place where the boy brings his prom date, you know, before prom, the, uh, there's engagements happening. There's, you know, people getting down on one knees and proposing in our place. There's rehearsal dinners. There's, you know, we're catering weddings. We want to be that place that, you know, people want to have memories built around or, you know, part of, we want to be part of their memories of their you know, life changes and, and all that kind of stuff. And that's that's important to us. Finally, what about inflation? I mean, we have to talk about it because we hear about it every day in the news. How has this affected you? I mean, you're no different from anyone else, and you have to pass your cost increases on to consumers just like anybody else. And And as we all know, wages are often the last thing to change during inflation, and dining out becomes an expensive treat for some. Absolutely. No, the inflation of food costs, the inflation of labor wages, they're all going up. Um, and we are, you know, not immune to it. We've had to kind of look hard at, at twice since COVID and say, you know, we've, we've got to raise our prices in order to, you know, take care of our guests, take care of our, um, employees, buy the food that we need to. I mean, paper goods were just going through the roof during COVID and, and, you know, you, you couldn't help but just to pass those on. Um, we can't absorb those. They're, they're real. Um, the, uh, the labor one is the hard one. We, we did go through a, a raise of all of our employees. Um, you know, you, you want to say, well, the, the minimum wage is this, you know, federally mandated minimum wage is this. We should be able to pay it. But the market's, you know, the, the market's not paying it. So, you know, employees are going to where the people are paying more and we had to follow suit as well. I mean, it's just part of, you know, the economy and where we're at. 
Our guest today has been Brian Kelleher, owner of 575 Pizzeria here in Amarillo and Little Elm, Texas. Brian, give us your best shot. Listen, we're in a people business. Every business is a person business. We've got to get to know our people and take care of them. Uh, I always like to say, you know, it's a great day for pizza any day. Come join us at 575 Pizzeria. But remember, we're all people in the business, doing business, and people are what make it all work. You've been listening to Buff Speak from the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. Our executive producer is Justin Lovell, and Allison Hunter is our associate producer. Our co-editors are Maverick Evans and Paul Torres. Lindsay Bjork is our director of marketing and outreach initiatives, which includes overseeing Buff Speak. Dr. Jeffrey Babb is Director of Accreditation and is our Technical Consultant. Finally, Dr. Amjad Abdullah is Dean of the College. You can find us online at wtamu.edu cob for more information about our programs. Be sure to check out our many academic offerings. Come for the quality, stay for the small classes, affordable tuition, and friendly approachable professors. And look online at our faculty blog, profspeak.com, for more insights. You can listen to BuffSpeak on your favorite podcast portal, as well as on our website, buffspeak.biz. And if you like what you've been hearing, don't be afraid to share us with your friends, colleagues, and family. Word of mouth has always been the best form of advertising. Until next time, love one another. For the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas a and University, I am Dr. Nick Gerlich. And as always, go Buffs! Buff Speak.